tēnā koutou. You're listening to a core education Tātai Ahorau podcast. You know, the idea that young people come in kind of packets of 30 with their age stamps on their forehead and they have to stay in that package for their journey is pretty absurd, isn't it? People develop at different stages and at different ages. Kia ora, nau mai haramai ki, ULEARN 22. Welcome to ULEARN 22 online, brought to you by Core Education. Ko Janelle Rikiwaka tēnei. Now, super excited to introduce our first kaihotu for ULEARN 22. It is my pleasure to introduce Valerie Hannon. Valerie is a global thought leader, inspiring systems to rethink what success will mean in the 21st century and the implications for education. The co-founder of Innovation Unit and the Global Education Leaders Partnership, Valerie is a radical voice for change while grounded in a deep understanding of how education systems currently work. This Kaihotu session will draw on Valerie's most recent research and publications, which explore the nature of schools that are intentionally redesigning themselves to be fit for future, and also the leadership that is needed to bring the designs to fruition. Tēnā Valerie. Janelle, thank you very much indeed for that introduction, and hello everybody. I'm excited by this, I think, for, for, for two reasons. One, I'm a long-term, long-time passionate friend of New Zealand. It's, it's hurt me, it's grieved me over the last three years not to be able to come back and see my many friends living on the North and South Islands, to connect with educators whom I think are amongst the most powerful and interesting and inspiring in the world. And I'm really engaged by New Zealand's journey into a bicultural future, unlike anywhere else in the world, I think. And the second reason I'm thrilled about this is the metaphor that you've adopted, this notion of setting out on a journey in turbulent waters, is one I absolutely identify with and resonate with. And I wish I'd thought of the metaphor myself some years ago when I was trying to think about how to capture the kind of state that we are in, our predicament as a species on this lonely planet. And I think that the idea of setting sail, using our paddles out there into the turbulent waters is indeed something that we all need to understand and take forward. I've called this the leadership challenge of a generation, navigating through the turbulent waters and what turbulent waters they are. I've called it the age of hyperchange and disruption. Hyperchange, first of all, because anyone who's thought about the future, even briefly, recognizes that we are in a state of change now which is faster, more penetrating than has ever happened in human history previously. And it's disruptive change. Much though we would like to think about the age we live in as a kind of steady, incremental slope of progress, Sadly, that's not the case. And if COVID taught us anything over the last two, three years, it is surely that, that we cannot assume that our lives will be one of steady progress and upward direction. We will meet disruption at many, many levels and in many domains. We are seeing it in geopolitics. We are seeing it in climate. We are seeing it in health. 
And as I say, much as we would want to avoid the Chinese curse of living in so-called interesting times, <clears throat> that is our fate. But I think that as educators, we have a moral responsibility to address these issues of the future. You may think, well, hell, the present is tough enough. And that's true, it is. Being truly present in the present is, of course, an immense skill. But I want to argue that being part of shaping the future is a fundamental responsibility of educators and one that we have to embrace. And we can only do so if we change our systems, change our institutions, change our mindsets, and indeed change our skill sets and repertoires as educators. Let me explain what I mean by that. If I take these recent publications, Back to the Future of Education from the OECD, Trends Shaping Education, the Future of Education and Skills, look at any one of them and you will find a considerable consensus around the nature of the future that we want and how it is that we're headed in the wrong direction. A recent interesting paper by UNESCO here on the slide called Reimagining Our Futures Together suggests that we need actually to create a new kind of social contract for education, one profoundly located in the concept of equity, as this conference has recognized, but with a series of other dimensions as well. So I'm not alone in the argument that I'm making. It's grounded in much international research and inter-government agency thinking. All too sadly though, it's rarely em embraced by government systems themselves. And I want you to get into this by thinking, and I ask you to do this really seriously, which of this selection of change forces you think will have the greatest impact on your learners' lives? Climate change, where, as we know from the scientific evidence, we're at a point now, having failed to restrict the increase in the temperature, the surface temperature of the earth, where there could be sudden disruptive shifts in terms of, for example, the scale of the, the polar ice and what that might do to sea levels. We've seen on every continent, forest fires, wildflowers fires without control and flooding and levels of temperature, which are making some areas of our world unlivable. This is not in the future. This is impacting many communities of the world around the world now powerfully and making what used to be their home unlivable. The loss of biodiversity, where we're seeing the disappearance of a quarter of all mammals, a fifth of all the reptiles, and a sixth of all birds, gone to oblivion. And you may think, well, that's a kind of sadness, um, perhaps it's a moral disgrace, but it is also directly impacting human health. We are seeing, and going to see even more rapidly, job disruption by robotics, the penetration of artificial intelligence, machine learning through algorithms, which means that these systems can know us better than we know ourselves. This is not all catastrophic thinking though. Global connectivity means that research communities around the world are globally interconnected instantaneously, which enables things like the development of a vaccine for COVID in a record period of time, when most commentators thought it would take 10 years, it was done in the space of 18 months. 
Global connectivity is an extraordinary, extraordinary change force, and it's speeding up, becoming ever more powerful, as is genetic engineering, engineering out many appalling inherited diseases, but also giving all kinds of options in terms perhaps of trait selection for, for babies. More pandemics. Do you think you've seen the last of pandemics? Most scientists don't. And of course, growing inequality, violence and conflict. And who could have predicted that on the continent of Europe, we would have seen an outbreak of vicious, genocidal conflict yet again in our century. So these are the change forces that your young learners will have to contend with. And I don't know what you think about the greatest impact or uh, the, the mo most powerful, but I do believe that every educator has the responsibility to think very seriously about that and the extent to which we are capable of preparing young people to cope with it. I argue that school systems are currently entirely inadequate for addressing the scale of our challenges. If you think about those challenges, the extent to which we are addressing them for young people is simply not in the right ballpark. Learners are not acquiring the knowledge, the skills, and the values needed for the 21st century. They can pass exams all right, or some of them, but are they learning how they will thrive? And this is the question that we have to be asking. So the question that's driven me in my research recently has been, what do schools look like that really are addressing the challenges head on? And that's what I'm gonna be driving towards sharing with you in this first kind of navigating of the flotilla or the, the launching of the canoes in these turbulent waters. Well, I'm gonna share with you what I think I've seen in my international work, which is three trends. First, I discern a new debate around purpose. What is it? that we are trying to do with our education systems? What fundamentally is our purpose? The second trend I see at institutional level is the use of design principles drawn from futures thinking to create schools that really are fit for the future. And thirdly, what I've discovered, and it was a surprise to me, but I'll share with you the data and you can make your own decisions. I see these two trends coming together in new archetypes of schools, which are addressing the key challenges of our time, the key challenges of our species. So I'm gonna take each one of those in turn and make an argument and show some research, which sets out what I find has been going on. Now this business about purpose, um, the debate about purpose springs from the realization that actually, in most systems, there is a tacit, unspoken, very powerful narrative underpinning many or perhaps most education systems. Everything starts with the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And my God, do not indigenous communities understand that better than any other communities in the world. And it's taken many of us, a long, long time to understand that it's the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves that determines so much. So what then is the underpinning education story? Well, I think it's fundamentally individualistic, 
economistic and competitive. It's not spelled out usually, but I'm going to spell it out now. And I think it goes something like this. Education makes nations more prosperous because it increases growth. Growth, by the way, usually defined by GDP, gross domestic product. And that means consumerism, more, consu more consumption of the Earth's resources, uh, more utilization of those resources. So I would argue considerable detriments of the universe. It's an individualistic endeavor. Education is about the competition for rationed goods. For example, university places, entry to certain jobs, social status. And what is success in education? Well, actually, the real story, no matter about the rhetoric, is really about getting qualifications. And the only qualifications that really, really count in terms of social status are the academics social academic, so subject-based academics. And you know what? Getting into university is the key success indicator. If you haven't got a degree in most countries or in most systems, you're really pretty much second class. And I think when you spell it out like this, it's a pretty unsavory story. But the truth is that, that story is what holds our education systems in place and prevents the kind of change Though I think most of the people wanting to get in these canoes today and paddle furiously towards a different future want to change. A great writer called Michael Sandel, a public philosopher, wrote a book recently called The Tyranny of Merit. He says this story, this vision of what education is fundamentally about, creates hubris amongst the winners. The winners think they kind of deserve their success. It's down to their talents and their skills. But amongst the losers, it creates humiliation and resentment. And he argues, to my mind, very persuasively, that actually underpins some of the ghastly nationalistic movements we've seen, certainly in the US and the UK in recent years. Well, if that's the story that currently prevails, what's the option? How do you change that narrative? How can we go about creating a version that would enable us to voyage, voyage, towards a much more equitable and thriving future. I've suggested in a recent book called Thrive, The Purpose of Schools in a Changing World, that purpose is paramount. We have to ask what we are really trying to do and not engaging with it enables continuation of the old highly dysfunctional paradigm, which has colluded in the creation of the inequities we see in this world of ours, but not just inequity. And I argue, that a new narrative of a different purpose can be summed up quite simply. Today, I think, education has to be about learning to thrive in a transforming world. Learning to thrive, not succeed, thrive in a transforming world. And you'll notice there's two parts to that equation. What does it mean to thrive? And what do we know about this transforming world? Well, I can't dwell on the second part in, in this talk today, though in my book, I spend a good deal of time thinking about that. But I do want to suggest to you that when we talk about thriving, we want to think about it at four levels, which are completely interdependent and interrelated. And the first level is obvious. We need to create planetary and global level thriving. Because if we fry our planet, if we continue to violate it and desolate it, we are toast. We have no home. And if we cannot strive towards 
global thriving in the sense of peaceful futures, equally, we head for catastrophe. And Lord knows we're at a highly dangerous point in human history right now, as people have reverted to the language of nuclear war. I never thought that that would happen again in our lifetimes, and it is. Why? Because our education systems across the world do not make as a specific target thriving at planetary and global level, global competence, teaching peace, and teaching how to live sustainable lives amongst other species. The second level of thriving is societal because we live in communities. And if those societies are dysfunctional because of inequity, if they're disfigured, then okay, you might be able to live a kind of a thriving life in a, in a gated community separated off. But really, how sustainable do people really think that is? No, we need societies which are much more profoundly democratic. We need to be looking again at our democracies and the extent to which they genuinely are democratic or the extent to which democracy needs to be reinvented to drive towards more equitable futures. The third level of thriving is interpersonal. The quality of the relations that we make between individual persons. All the research is out there as if we needed it to tell us that it takes great relationships to make thriving lives. I know it's true in my life. I suspect it's true in yours too. And do we think that the skill, the competence of making great relationships is just a matter of luck or good fortune and family background? I don't. I think it's a teachable competence and that we ought to be addressing that within our educational institutions. How do we make and keep great relationships? And then the final level of thriving, or maybe it should be the first, intrapersonal. The finding of true personal identity, peace, calm, a sense of purpose, comfort at being alone, but also comfort with being others, really excellent mental health. Those things, the intrapersonal thriving, I believe we can teach in schools and we ought to be so doing. So those are the four interconnected levels of thriving. And I believe that if we are to drive towards a new purpose, those are the levels that we need to be addressing and asking ourselves, what does that mean for changed curriculum, pedagogy, and indeed assessment? Well, some schools are thinking about that hard. And what I've discovered in my research is that these schools are using design principles to help them create schools that are fit for the future, meaning schools that can help young people thrive and create a, a thriving planet, thriving communities and thriving relationships. So many schools now are clear about the why of we're doing this. We want a different kind of future. We want a different kind of purpose. We have a lot of resources now around the what, but the big question for many schools, teachers, school leaders is the how. And that's where I want to kind of start off this whole section around design principles. Because what I found in my research, I've reported in a new book, which is called Future School, how schools around the world are applying learning design principles for a new era. And I was invited to do this research by a really interesting foundation in Australia called the Australian Learning Lecture, who said, 
tell us something about schools for the future. And I had to think about some kind of a methodology to determine how would we know that a school is fit for the future? It seemed to me to be a, a, a tough methodological um, challenge to face. So I didn't start with schools. What I did with my research team was to do a scan of a number of future-focused organizations who are thinking about the nature of the future itself, the contours, if you like, of the future that confronts us. And some of these are intergovernmental agencies like the OECD, um, others like Remake Learning or the Lego Foundation are philanthropists and foundations that are thinking hard about the nature of the future that we face. And out of their work, my research team and I synthesized a set of design principles that these organizations were suggesting characterize schools that were fit for the future. And from there, we moved to identify the schools that were interesting to explore. So I wonder what you would do to identify schools for the fit for the future, but that was our methodology. And here's what we discovered. We discovered that schools were using these design principles in this sense, laws with leeway. And if you ask any designer where they use design principles, that's what they would suggest. They're not hard and concrete and fast, laws with leeway, but guiding principles to help set a course or navigate a, a direction of travel, if you like. And here were the design principles in three clusters that we discovered. There was a cluster of design principles around values. There was a cluster of design principles around operational philosophy. And there was a cluster of design principles around the learner experience. And this was really interesting to me because, of course, if learners don't experience a shift, a change, something quite different, then differences in values and principles around operational philosophy have meant nothing, really. So what did these amount to? Let me take the first set of these around values. We found five, five design principles which characterized the work of schools which were intentionally seeking to be fit for the future. The first was, and you won't be surprised by this, that they were purpose-driven. They were completely explicit about their purpose. They didn't take it for granted. They, didn't, they weren't um, shy or coy about it. They were very explicit about their purpose, whatever that purpose was, and I'll come back to that in a minute. They were all equity-focused, seeing equity as a fundamental value for enabling thriving. Thirdly, they were in the business of promoting identity as a fundamental value. This notion of identity, whether at the community level or the individual level, was absolutely central. Fourthly, and this was an interesting one to me, they were strength-based. They didn't ask of young people who come into their schools, what can't you do, we're going to fix it. They built upon the strengths of young people in terms of their prior learning, their community inheritance and their cultural strengths and built upon that as they go forward. And finally, they were determined in their value frame to be relevant, to be relevant to a nation, to be relevant to a community, relevant to a young person's passions. And this concept of relevance in values, I think, is such a big differentiator between the schools of yesterday and of last century and now too sadly of the last decades where relevance is a kind of an afterthought. You follow a curriculum no matter what. 
New Zealand has been one of the great exemplars across the world, which has looked at its curriculum and has thought about relevance. But these schools are not thinking about, here's a body of knowledge, we have to teach it. They're asking these questions from a position of this value frame. So the second set of design principles was around operational philosophy. And there were four. The first of these was that these schools are learning focused. And you may think, well, huh, that's obvious, that's axiomatic. Every school is learning focused. I have to tell you, sadly, it is not. Too many schools are focused on their own traditions, their own conventions, on keeping order, on keeping discipline, on making sure that kids are compliant or getting more kids into university, but they're not focused on learning. And schools fit for the future need to be. They need to be organizations where everybody is a learner, from the principal to the, all the staff working in whatever domain, whether it's making the food, cleaning the school, teaching, being a teaching assistant, whatever it is, everybody's a learner. And they're in the business of understanding what makes powerful learning. So they are focused on the research that's coming out now from neuroscience, from a whole range of learning sciences and saying, how do we take that and employ it in our organization? How do we become a really learning focused outfit? Because that's our expertise. We can't be on top of everything in new developments in chemistry or new developments in mathematics, but we can be on top of what makes great learning and bring that to bear. The second principle, design principle in operational philosophy is that they are flexible and they're dynamic. They don't get stuck in routines. And we saw this particularly in COVID where schools which were swift to move, could turn on a sixpence, change how they operate were really powerful. Thirdly, they're ecosystemic. What does that mean? Well, it means that they understood that a school fit for the 21st century has to be profoundly linked and connected to its local community, but also to its global community, understanding itself as an ecosystem with many, many sources of learning to draw upon. And again, I find this really inspirationally in many New Zealand schools who bring community into their schools in a really powerful way. And that is not the case, of course, with many schools across the world who see schools as a kind of a fortress, a freestanding silo, and the, and the teaching staff is it. Well, why would you do that when these days, through the technology that we have at our fingertips, we can collect, connect with the best thinkers, the best teachers in the world whose work is online, as well as wonderful educators literally on our doorsteps. So becoming ecosystemic, I think, is a huge shift for schools who want to be fit for the future. And then finally, they're technology enhanced. And I think it's interesting that many people who think about schools for the future think of shiny technology and you know <clears throat> headphones and augmented reality and so on and so forth. And sure, that may have a part to play, but the schools that we looked at and which have been working in this way see tech these emergent technologies as just another tool alongside a paintbrush or alongside um, molding clay. Technology enhanced to the nth degree, making use of the best technology available, but not driven by it and not a slave to it. The third category, and this is the one I really want to dwell on and expand, is 
the area of learner experience. And here we found five design principles that schools fit for the future were employing. Let me take them one by one. The first is that these schools saw themselves as being personalized, not individuated. So that's not about every kid in front of her own computer following an individual program, but rather the learner's experience in her school relates to her personal needs and her passions, her development and her purposes. And these are the things that are at the center, not the institution and its conventions or its traditions, not the teacher, not external bodies of knowledge. So being profoundly personalized, as we expect many other aspects of our lives now to be, is gonna be a hallmark of schools fit for the future. The second design principle is that the learner experiences meaning through learning that transcends silos. It builds connections within and between disciplines. Now, that means utilizing many forms. It doesn't mean we throw disciplines out the window. What a stupid idea, of course we can't do that. This, walk, this path, which is integrated, looks at disciplinary forms of learning, you know, profoundly understanding key concepts in mathematics or whatever it is, interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary. And it's through those connections that the learner starts increasingly to experience meaning. I know that might sound a bit abstract in this talk, but if you were to look at the book, we give you loads of examples of schools that are doing exactly that. And also testimony for students, because of course we've illustrated this by learner's testimony, because if the learners aren't experiencing it that way, it's of no value whatever. Thirdly, the learner's experience <clears throat> is inclusive. The culture is experienced as respectful and welcoming. Whoever you are, wherever you come from, whatever cultural background you bring, whatever heritage you bring, whether you are neurodiverse, and we all are, that is respected and it is welcomed as bringing new riches to the community which you are joining. And I tell you now that the, the testimony of young people that we included in this section from schools who set out intentionally to use this design principle is profoundly moving, profoundly moving. And I found myself brought to tears sometimes by listening to young people who suddenly experienced a community in that way. The fourth design principle in this cluster is around uh, social and relational. And it means individuals are known. Good relationships are the absolute basis for deep learning. You don't leave your emotions at the doorstep. You bring them in and the relationships that you find within that community help you deal with them and make them good. And collaboration is the norm. So the schools that we looked at who were employing this increasingly saw their collections of young people as setting out to help each other succeed, not to succeed in competition and at the expense of others. Collaboration was the norm. And how powerful is that? And the final, in, final design principle in this sector is that of being empowering. Future schools build and leverage learner agency or self-direction, providing opportunities for learners to take increasing responsibility and ownership over their own, own learning. 
And you want to be very careful here. We are not talking about autonomy. We understand, and school, every school understands, you can't have situations where every learner is completely autonomous. It's an absurdity, just as we can't be completely autonomous in our own communities. But we can really, from very early ages, enable young learners to have a sense of agency, to be making choices, to have their voices heard, providing opportunities for learners to take more and more responsibility and ownership for their learning journeys. And when you do that, you don't have a problem with discipline anymore. You don't have a problem incentivizing kids to learn or to work harder. You can't stop them because it's theirs. It's something that they own, that they're passionate about and in which they see their future unfolding. But more than that, young people who start to encounter this sense of agency, perhaps by doing work which engages in community projects that make a difference to their own community, they get the sense that they can change the direction that our societies are moving in. They can be a part of shaping the future. And for me, that is the ultimate goal that we need, our purpose needs to be around creating young people who feel they can shape our future towards a different, more equitable, thriving future. So these are not just pie in the sky. These design principles are in use in schools around the world. And like any research team, when we identified schools using them, we stood back and said, well, that's fascinating. These are enormously important ingredients, but you know, it's not a recipe. There are a bunch of ingredients which are schools, schools are combining in different kinds of ways, in different combinations and different permutations, taking some from values, taking some from operational philosophy and taking some from this clutch around learner experience. But we found then clusters of schools who were combining them in very distinctive ways. And this was not something that research team expected to find, but here is what we did find. We discovered that schools are combining these design principles to address fundamentally the major challenges of our time. And we've called these archetypes. And from the data that we looked at, and you'll see them in the book, we discovered there are six. There may be more, but we are, of course, in a kind of, you know, in the cage of our own data that is not infinite. But here were the six um, archetypes. I want to make clear though, there is no suggestion that all schools should conform to these archetypes, none at all. I offer them to you in this conference out of interest for your response, and maybe you will find them inspirational. We found six, one around growing ethical leadership, two around building our technological future, three around promoting environmental thriving, four clusters of schools who were becoming experts in career navigation, enabling their young people to find their way in a fast changing labor market, five growing entrepreneurs and change makers, and six, a fascinating archetype, completely surprising to us, our human identity. Let me give you some examples. The first group is around building our technological future. And one example of these, of these was in Japan, the Kozen group of schools. And this group of schools fulfilling this archetype committed to the idea that young people need to be equipped 
with the skills, the competencies, and above all the values to create a technological future in which we aren't just the slaves of the technology on the outside of the black box with it controlling us, but with us shaping these technologies. And what fascinated us when we looked at the Kozen schools were how much they were, was how much they were really emphasizing the ethical framework within which new technologies had to be created and developed. So around the world, we see schools who do see technology as fundamental to our future, but are setting out to do that within an ethical framework. The second archetype was around promoting our environmental thriving. And again, I say, unless we crack this one, we have no future. The Green School in Bali, which many of you will know about, has, is just opening up a new school in its chain in New Zealand and also in Mexico. And at the very heart of everything they do in their curriculum is this notion of how do we start to thrive environmentally? How do we draw upon the wisdom of ancient and indigenous cultures, combine it with new technologies, combine it with the understandings of the state that we're in to create a different kind of future for ourselves? And their young people, I tell you, are amongst the most inspiring I have ever met in my life. The third architect, archetype was schools who are really absorbed with the notion that their young people are entering labor markets and a kind of labor landscape, which is gonna be fast changing because of technology and artificial intelligence. And they need their young people not to go down a particular path, but to become experts in career navigation perhaps moving in very different fields, not just 17 or 20 jobs as the data suggest, but becoming expert in brand new fields. And schools like this one, the Met in Rhode Island, Provincetown, where it's a big picture school, many of you will know the big picture change, um, puts into its, the very heart of its work, the notion of internships from a very young age in which young people can take internships in the community to sample and think about the real world of work and how that becomes relevant to them and how they find their own vocational purpose. The fourth archetype is one around growing entrepreneurs and change makers. And this we found to be a really growing group of schools across the world, India, Asia Pacifica, uh, and many, many in Europe, devoted to growing entrepreneurs and change makers. And the school that we studied in some depth was a school called Learn Life in Barcelona in Spain, where you see the motto and t-shirts they wear, education is the most powerful weapon which you can, through which you can change the world. And these young people saw themselves as the social innovators, the social entrepreneurs of the future. And they set out explicitly to equip themselves with the skills to do that really powerfully. And then finally, the one that surprised us most of all, Groups of schools who set out to use the design principles in a variety of combination to help young people to discover their own human identity. And how powerful is this? You will see that the school I've taken here as it's the exemplar is a New Zealand school, a Maori immersion school actually, Na Tapuai, where I've spent some time and where I was profoundly moved and inspired. And their purpose is to enable the young people to discover who they are in terms of their cultural heritage, their personal sense of identity, whether that's sexual identity, um, ethnic identity, community identity. 
And to our surprise, we found such schools really powerfully using these design principles to pursue that, especially in North America, interestingly, perhaps with its history of slavery, history of particularly vast numbers of immigrants. But the notion of identity in this world of ours, particularly where the notion of human identity in the face of artificial intelligence, what is it to be a human in the future? The old notion of human nature, I'm afraid, is pretty passe. So what we found was schools really focused on this notion of identity and using the design principles to help them. Well, I'm running out of my time, but I'm gonna finish just by one more, sorry, one archetype I've forgotten, and that is the archetype of growing ethical leadership. Schools who think that really what we are seeing is a dearth of truly ethical leadership in this world and setting out to enable young people to create the skills of leadership for the future. And the school that we focused particularly on was the Liger Leadership Academy in Phnom Penh in Cambodia, in a society completely disfigured by civil war in the past and needing, desperately needing a new generation of leaders. So it seems to me that to make all this happen, to create these kinds of archetypes, these kind of architects for the future, and you may think there are others, but these happen to be the ones that we discovered, three things need to happen. We need to drive the changes, firstly, by more and more exemplars, more people seizing their paddles to use these design principles in practice, building on your strengths. All schools have strengths in these design principles and innovating around the weak areas so that we build up a kind of a critical mass of more and more exemplars of practice. Secondly, I think we need to use all the innovation techniques that are now available to build and strengthen the practice. And that includes the kind of work that CORE does in New Zealand, professional learning communities, spiles of inquiry, network learning communities, all forms of collaborative exchange and reflective practice. This will drive forward our canoes and navigating this. And then I think we need to create a kind of a new evidence base, not just looking at the outcome of standardized tests, not ignoring them, they have their place, but we need stories, we need video material, we need data over time about different kinds of outcomes, not just the old metrics. Outcomes, for example, around mental good health and a school's contribution to its community. I think if we create a different kind of evidence base, Increasingly, people will say that this is the path. This is the journey. This is the way in which we need to navigate for schools for the future. So I've come to the end of my time. I've come to the end of a very brief resume of the research that we've discovered. I hope it gives you something to think about. I hope it makes connection with your journey over the next few days. And I'd be delighted, Janelle, to take some questions um, going into the next section, or not necessarily just questions, perhaps some observations and comment. Thank you all so much for listening, and um, I look forward to hearing what you have to say. Kia ora. Tēnā koe e hoa. That was so good. I'm, I'm writing screeds of notes and things that sat in my heart uh, and that just... Um, 
you know, really, I guess, affirm some of the things that I know about teaching and learning as well. So a couple of quotes that really sat with me. The first was that everything starts with the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. It really resonated in so many ways, not just, I guess, professionally in education, but also personally. And something I always say to my husband is there's my story and your story and somewhere in the middle is the truth. <laughs> so stories are powerful, but also understanding that I guess from an Indigenous perspective stories are everything you know they carry the mana of our ancestors and the kōrero tuku iho or those stories that are passed down through generations ensure that our mātauranga and our knowledge is kept alive in our people so from a Māori perspective I found that really resonated with me. We do have a couple of fantastic questions. I'm going to ask this one first. What are some of the practices, Valerie, that our teachers need to let go of? What comes to top of mind in terms of what maybe we should stop doing? Well, I don't want to assume that some of the practices that need to be left behind are necessarily play in your schools. So I don't want to insult anybody on this by saying, please let go of this, let go of that. And they let go of it 10 years ago, (laughs) you know. But so if I say to you that thinking about the design principles, the issue around becoming emotionally intelligent and inclusive and alert to the lived experience of kids in your class, wherever they're coming from, as opposed to thinking, I've got to get through this set amount of material, this curriculum path, no matter what, then many of your your participants will be profoundly insulted. But the truth is that that practice characterizes many classrooms across the world. And I have to say probably quite a few in New Zealand too, that it's the curriculum that comes first, there's, you know, there's a testing regime at the end of it. We will be held accountable to this testing regime. And too many other things are secondary. Now, that's not to say that academic outcomes are unimportant. They are not unimportant, but they are not the be all and the end all. And you just have to look at this world of ours to realize that, you know, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't people who are uneducated or illiterate who caused the the last Holocaust, or more trivially, the last financial meltdown. It was highly educated PhDs and MBAs and people entirely lacking a value frame that has brought our our world to disastrous ends and, and disastrous consequences. So the whole issue of engaging with the person in front of you, their values, and encouraging, I think, a climate where values are at the heart of everything, whatever subject you happen to be expert in, is for me absolutely fundamental. And letting go of the notion that we've just got to move from A to B and to C on the curriculum that's set out by our national system would strike me as so fundamental to everything else. I think I would say that we certainly are in very good stead in terms of what you've talked about here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I mean, we've still got a journey to go, but I think for the most part, 
schools really want to grow good people and really want to respond to what our kids present with their, their identity, their language, their culture, those kinds of things. So really appreciate your corridor. I think it's really reaffirming for those of us in education in Aotearoa. So I think, you know, many teachers and schools want to do that and find themselves too often a bit constrained by the systems that they find themselves within. So that's why I come back to this notion of a, of a tacit education story, a kind of, you know, an underpinning narrative that often people don't recognise. Mm. And when they find themselves saying, well, I'd like to do that, I'd like to spend more time on that, but actually I can't. Why? Because the old story prevails, mm. you know, and we, we've got to call that out and ask ourselves, what is our real purpose as a community of schools, as a nation of schools, and ask ourselves what, what comes first? Mm. Kia ora. Thank you so much, Valerie. Got another great question here from Michael. He's asking about how we might transition from a competitive education to one that's collaborative. And I think he's talking potentially about between schools, you know, working together so that we, we kind of, I think the competitiveness gets in the way of really good practice sometimes. So I hope I've asked your question well, Michael. So what are your thoughts around that, Valerie? Yeah, thanks for that. I mean, you're, you're right, Janelle, to call out the fact that competitiveness or the, the, the sort of the elevation of the concepts of competition operates at, again, all kinds of levels amongst individuals, you know, in, in, too often in the classroom, kids think that what they're doing is competing against others and, and trying to get better marks, grades, outcomes than them. And it's a very short sighted way because actually they'll do better when they collaborate. And between schools, if, you know, if, if, a, if a system has been short sighted enough to end up leashing sort of market forces so that schools have to compete for their learners, then they will resort to saying, look at our outcomes, look at our numbers of kids going to university or even to college. We're better than you, so come to our school. And of course, between nations, how, how disastrous is all of that? So it's a paradigm that has, you know, we, we can't just see it entirely in the classroom. You have to understand that it's a dysfunctional paradigm that characterizes much of human life right now. I would say it's a, a paradigm both of competition and a paradigm of dominance, actually. Dominance of humans over nature, of men over women, and some races of over other races. Well, the root of it is how we teach young kids in schools to see others. And coming back to our purpose, is our purpose just for me to, to get one over on you or for us all to do better together? And I think going back to my four levels of thriving, when you understand that thriving communities fundamentally depend upon equity and enabling all boats to rise, when you really get to grips with the fundamental truth of that, the rest kind of flows away. So I think it's for every teacher in her or his classroom to think about the extent to which they are enabling those, those old dysfunctional values to prevail and, and to, to be sustained or the extent to which we call them out and say, you know, kid X over kid A has a very different neurodiverse kind of jagged contour, if you like. I'm skilled here. I'm talented there. I'm less so there. But together, my God, are we powerful? Mm. So again, the narrative comes into play, but it's from the very micro practices of how we enable the littlest kids to cooperate together to how we enable older ones to understand that they will do better 
when they collaborate towards a common purpose. Kia ora. such a powerful corridor. And I just wanted to hone in a little bit on your levels of thriving. That was something that I found really interesting and I'm going to go away thinking about that even more, I think. I guess as a Māori woman, I keep I think in the collective, I act in the collective. You know, tri- many tribal Indigenous people are of the I am we, you know, of type of um, thinking. How, how does that fit in the levels of thriving, do you think? You just talked about powerful you know people coming together and their collective strengths and I think that's a real Maori way of thinking that skills and the expertise belong to the collective if you have it we have it that kind Mm -hmm. of battle so do, do you I guess my questions around do you see some of those tribal ways of thinking being living actually being more relevant in the future there may be that infinitely more relevant infinitely more And that's true of Indigenous communities across the world, whether we're talking about First Nations in Canada, whether we're talking about um, in Africa, the concept of Ubuntu, I've thought long and hard about and started to understand the gift that this is to so-called developed cultures who've lost all sense of that. But I think it does need to be placed within the frame, the context of our 21st century living, where God knows, you know, the the levels of mental ill health, of dysfunctional anxiety, depression, body dysmorphia. I mean, if you look at the data and the statistics on mental ill health amongst the young, it freezes the blood. And I've looked at suicide rates across developed nations and indeed so-called undeveloped in the global south, and they are absolutely terrifying. Now, one answer and solution to that is indeed finding one's place in community. But there is also the tradition, and this is why I go back to the intrapersonal level of thriving, in which the skills of coming to know oneself, perhaps in silence, in meditation, in a sense of calm understanding, which you can locate yourself in the broader community, is I think equally important. So I don't wanna put a privilege one over the other. I think there's there's a marriage perhaps of cultural heritage and traditions here, which perhaps will be uniquely and distinctively 21st century. That is my hope and my prayer, because I think that way is our salvation. Mm, Kelda, that makes me super excited for, I guess, Indigenous peoples worldwide in, in terms of their ability to share some of the mātauranga and the knowledge with others uh, going forward. I just want to pick up on a Pātai, a question from Carrie Thomas. How can we become more cohesive, future-focused schools across all of our different learning environments, so from early childhood education to primary to secondary and universities? And we have what we call kahuiako or communities of schools and uh, mm. educational contexts that come together. And so we've had we've made a start but there's still some real inconsistency. So mm-hmm. what would you say about the, the collaboration across the varying areas of education? It's a great question. And, and it's it's the one, one of the, the kind of drivers of change that I picked up in my final slide, which is that, you know, well, it's, it's two things really. One is this whole notion of schools being ecosystemic, seeing themselves as part of an ecosystem for learning, which is around their communities, but also the pathways that their learners will proceed on and that not being a kind of separate stage you know with a a kind of clunky transition 
but rather something which is smooth and prepared for. So that's that's one dimension. The other dimension, though, is I think a, a, you know a, a powerful creation of change is the collaborative activity between teachers in different phases. And I've often thought, and it's 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 paramountly the, the case that there is so much to be learned from the way in which early years educators see the world holistically and introduce the world holistically to young people before it just kind of gets chopped up. There's nothing natural about the way in which we've chopped up knowledge. It's a function of a, a committee that met in the late 19th century in, in, in the US and thought that that's really how the curriculum ought to be organized. And we now take it as though it's a kind of gift from God. Well, it's not. We can see knowledge as interconnected the way early years educators do. But my point is here, we all have much to learn from each other across the phases. And I think what New Zealand is doing in creating those communities, enabling networks of teachers to come together, to think about this as a, as a seamless journey owned by the young person. And increasingly, I would suggest, not determined by age. You know, the idea that young people come in kind of packets of 30 with their age stamps on their forehead and they have to stay in that package for their journey is pretty absurd, isn't it? People develop at different stages and at different ages. And that, <clears throat> that point about flexibility, that was one of the design principles, was saying, look, if a young person is ready for a college-like experience at 14, that's where they should be, you know? That's, that's the experience they should have. And it's up for us as teachers and as managers and as leaders to create flexibility in the system between ourselves to meet the needs of that young person. And I think that we are seeing now much greater levels of collaboration amongst educators and indeed system leaders to make that kind of thing work well. I mean, yes, it takes effort. Yes, it takes administrative skill, but you know, it's not beyond our wit. We could do this if we set our minds to it and if we cared enough. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Valerie. I feel like you have inspired all of us today. I want to thank you for your time. You are on the other side of the world. We appreciate you ensuring that you're available at this time for our conference. I want to thank you so much for your cordial today. It's been powerful. Massive mihi to you, Valerie, and mihi anna. You've been listening to a Core Education Tatai Ahoro podcast.